What you're about to listen to is part two of a four-part series about the Japanese samurai invasions of Korea, 1592-1598, known in Korea as the Imjin War. If you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be pretty lost, so I recommend that you do so. If you're all caught up, on with the show. The year, 1593. The place, Pyongyang, Korea. The samurai invasion is in serious trouble. The Japanese are pinned down by guerrillas, cut off by the Korean Navy, and worst of all, they have awakened the Chinese dragon. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 21, The Imjin War Part 2, Enter the Dragon. I am so happy you're here. I've been wanting to talk about these battles and this conflict forever, and I'm really excited. We're going to continue the story of the Imjin War, the Japanese invasions of Korea that were one of the largest and bitterest conflicts of the 16th century. Today's narrative features guerrillas, sieges, tigers, rocket launchers, and clothing dyed with period blood. All part of this complete breakfast. Hope y'all are ready. So since I'm not a complete jerk, I'm going to give you guys a quick recap. Now, where were we? Oh yeah, Japan had been involved in an age of civil war for almost a century when a peasant-turned-warlord named Toyotomi Hideyoshi fought his way to the top. He had come from nothing, and he wanted everything, so he set his sights on the invasion of China, ruled by the Ming Dynasty. When the small kingdom of Korea denied him passage through their territory, Hideyoshi unleashed a samurai blitzkrieg on this peaceful land. At first, the Japanese seemed unstoppable. The two rivals, the Christian daimyo Kanishi Yukinaga and the banana-hatted Buddhist Kato Kiyomasa, cut bloody streaks across Korea, shattering armies and slaughtering civilians. The Japanese were cruel, fierce, ruthless, and lethal in combat. By August 1592, they had captured Korea's biggest cities, including Busan, Seoul, and Pyongyang, but they had failed to account for the Korean Navy. Led by its great admiral, Yi Sun Shin, the navy inflicted shattering defeats on the Japanese, ruining Hideyoshi's plans for a glorious conquest of China. Now the Japanese were stuck holding a narrow corridor of territory across Korea, looking worriedly to the north, waiting for the Chinese dragon to awaken. We pick up the story at this point today. So if you don't remember any of that, you might have missed an episode, so I advise you to check the feed. And if you'd like, I have a short round out with a lot of background and detail about Hideyoshi's samurai army, the Japanese forces, a gunpowder army that invaded Korea in 1592. So if you haven't, I'll give you the chance to go check those out. Three, two, one. All right, guys, let's get rolling. If you didn't know, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13, guys. Language is clean. The content is not. Violence in this war is unusually gruesome, even for this podcast. All my sources for the whole series will be posted on my website, so you can fact-check me if you want to. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own, especially with these pronunciations, guys. I'm just doing my best over here with these Asian languages. I don't speak any of them. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. 
This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. History does not repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes, it echoes. I'm going to give you a scene, a scene that has played out many times over, all over the world, in many different conflicts and in many different cultures. And I want you to see if any of this sounds familiar. Damn the high command. What were they thinking? The veteran sergeant shook his head as he looked out over the snowy plains of this foreign land. It had all seemed so easy at first. The invasion had been quick. The enemy had been had fled. They had been unstoppable. But those days were long gone. Now they were stranded, hungry, tired, and freezing. The sergeant held his coat tighter against the terrible wind, his eyes flitting back and forth across the landscape. Wish they told me how cold it was out here. Had no idea anyone could be this cold. His helmet was heavy, his uniform stiff with frost. The sergeant looked over his men, many of them just boys, trying to stay awake or leaning against the walls of the little outpost. Here they were, hundreds of miles from home, low on supplies, surrounded by these native barbarians. They didn't just face normal enemies, no. These enemies were cowards who struck by night or from ambush, firing their weapons then fleeing into the darkness. The sergeant shrugged. They had no choice. Whatever had led them here, they had to survive. He had to get his boys out alive. But as the sun slowly rose over the broken, frozen landscape, he knew in his heart that many of them would never make it home. Now this might seem very familiar, right? This could be a Roman legionary on the frontier in Germany. It could be a Hessian mercenary in New Jersey in 1776. It could be one of Napoleon's or Hitler's soldiers in Russia. It could be a U.S. Army garrison in Afghanistan, maybe in Nuristan, maybe the famous outpost at Kop Keating, or even a U.S. Marine at Chosan Reservoir in a very different Korean War. But none of those were who I had in mind. The man I just described is a veteran Japanese Ashigaru, occupying a remote fortress in the wilderness of North Korea. Like so many invasions in history, initial success had run out of steam, the grand ambitions of early on had fallen into the dust, and the samurai blitzkrieg had been brought to a halt. People went hard in every possible way in the 16th century, and the winter of 1592 to 1593 would show the Japanese that their enemies were just as hard as they were. In this episode, we will see how the Japanese were stopped by three major forces. They were strangled, pinned down, and punched in the face. Yi Sun-shin's navy strangled their supply lines by sea. The Korean guerrillas pinned them down and made Korea impossible to hold. And the army of Ming China punched them in the face with overwhelming firepower and resources. Because when the Chinese came calling, the Japanese would sincerely regret awakening the dragon. Today, we will continue the story of the Imjin War. We're going to show the difficulties the Japanese faced when the Samurai Blitzkrieg ran out of gas. We're going to see how the Korean guerrilla resistance stretched the Japanese to their limit, and how the army of Ming China delivered a firepower smackdown that caused them to finally retreat. We will see how, despite all of this, the Imjin War continued. And I will explain why it's important at the end of our story. You've hopefully heard part one. Otherwise, a lot of this will not make much sense. Today is part two, and next week is part three, and in part four, I'll tie it all together. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, pay your bills, get your spouse that Valentine's present you forgot, do the thing you need to do. So bundle up, 
Don't touch metal with your bare hand. Light a fire, stare into the darkness, and watch your breath rise in the cold. It's going to be a long Korean winter. We're going back on campaign. It was monsoon season in Korea. Sheets of hammering rain churned the earth into mud and made it hard to see more than a few feet away. In the early dawn of August 23, 1592, 3,000 Chinese cavalry under General Zhu Chengzun splashed through the rain towards the modern North Korean capital of Pyongyang. The spearhead of the Japanese invasion, Kanishi Yukonaga's 1st Division, rested inside the walls, totally unaware of the Chinese approach. The Chinese emperor, Wan Li of the Ming dynasty, had received urgent reports of some kind of Japanese attack on Korea. Now, he was hundreds of miles away in Beijing, so the imperial court had a less than perfect picture of the situation. Were the Koreans just overreacting to a big pirate raid? Was it even possible that the Koreans somehow allied with the Japanese? But letters from King Sonjo cleared things up. No, this was a full-blown invasion, and not only was Korea in great danger, China itself might be threatened. They had to act. But even the power of Ming China had limits. See, the Chinese, unlike the Koreans and Japanese, had more than one problem to deal with. Some crazy stuff had popped off in their northwest borderlands. The Ningxia Rebellion demanded the full attention of the Chinese military for most of 1592, and China also had to keep an eye on its northern and southern borders. Besides, it would take Big Brother months to assemble, supply, and march an army to rescue Korea. So to calm King Sanjo down, the Chinese agreed to send an advanced force of cavalry, just to keep an eye on things. This was the small cavalry unit that approached Pyongyang on the morning of August 23, 1592. Zhu Chengzun was overconfident. He bragged to King Sanjo that he would round up the barbarians and send them packing. Even though they tried to warn him that, hey, these guys are freaking crazy, you ought to be careful. General Zhu said, To me, the Japanese robber army will be but a swarm of ants and wasps. They will soon be scattered to the four winds. Say it with me. Famous last words. Images one second before disaster. Zhu Chengzun telling the Koreans, Bro, I got this. Trust me. Under cover of the monsoon, the Chinese came riding right through the open gates of Pyongyang. The early hour in the monsoon allowed Zhu's horsemen to take Kanishi Yukonaga's 18,000 men completely by surprise. Most of the samurai didn't even have time to put on their armor. They just grabbed whatever weapons were at hand and rushed to fight off the Chinese cavalry. It was pretty touch and go there for a while but the cavalry charge got caught in the maze of streets that was Pyongyang. The Japanese led the Chinese horsemen into back alleys and narrow roads, splitting them up and causing them to be overwhelmed. In absolutely pissing rain, Japanese soldiers with muskets and long spears surrounded and overwhelmed the scattered detachments of cavalry. Soon, the Chinese were racing back out of Pyongyang, pursued and cut down in droves by mounted samurai. Zhu Chengzun and a remnant of his former unit barely escaped back to China. Kanishi Yukonaga, the Christian daimyo, was euphoric. The first encounter between the Japanese samurai and Ming China had been a victory. 
Now, if he got some reinforcements and supplies, they could kick off the invasion of China. But that was the problem. Reinforcements and supplies weren't coming. Because only a week before the Chinese cavalry arrived at Pyongyang, Yi Sun-shin had shattered the cream of the Japanese navy at Han Sando. The Japanese did not control the sea. No reinforcements and supplies were coming. We really need to take a second here and talk about supply and logistics, a constant theme in this podcast. Tens of thousands of heavily armed men are basically a moving city and require immense amounts of supplies just to keep running. Food, shoes, weapons, armor, wagons, horses, ammunition, you name it. And the longer the distance, the bigger the supply problems get. I'm going to devote an entire short round at the end of this series just to breaking down the math of the logistics of the Imjin War. But my po- but long story short, supplying Kanishi Yukonaga's 18,000 men by land over the 420 miles from Busan to Pyongyang was basically impossible. And you can forget about supplying a serious invasion force of Ch- for attacking China. The only realistic way to supply that force would be by sea. And that had been Hideyoshi's plan all along, to supply his army by sea. But Yi Sun-shin and the Korean Navy had shot that plan dead like Old Yeller. Without sufficient supplies, the advance came to a halt. And now the Japanese army was spread across Korea in bits and pieces, holding thin corridors of territory along the major roads. At the ends of these roads, the spearheads, Kanishi Yukonaga's 1st and Kato Kiyomasa's 2nd Divisions, which had come so far so fast, were out on a limb, stranded in the vast expanses of North Korea. The Samurai Blitzkrieg had run out of gas. Toyotomi Hideyoshi had planned to sail over to Korea when the conquest was complete, so he could take command of his forces in person and prepare for the invasion of China. But now that didn't seem like the best idea. Besides, someone needed to stay home and keep an eye on all those ambitious, powerful, recently conquered Japanese warlords, especially Tokugawa Ieyasu. This is a super important guy in Japanese history that you may or may not remember from last time. Tokugawa was the second most powerful man in Japan. He acted and seemed loyal, but he was the most powerful daimyo under Hideyoshi's control, and the only one who had ever defeated him in battle. If Hideyoshi crossed over to Korea, or if, God forbid, he was trapped in Korea by Yi Sun-shin's navy, his so-called allies might see their chance to overthrow his regime. So to keep control of events at home and to await further developments in Korea, Hideyoshi kept postponing his glorious arrival. Maybe next week. Maybe next month. Maybe next year. With the Samurai Blitzkrieg running out of gas, and without Hideyoshi coming to take charge, the daimyo had to confront two realities. Number one, there would be no invasion of China. It was postponed, indefinitely. In fact, the reverse was true. Chinese intervention was now almost certain. And two, they needed to prepare to winter in Korea. The daimyo decided to halt their advance northward and start consolidating their control over Korea's eight provinces. This really shows what Yi Sun-shin's naval victories had accomplished. He had caused the samurai leaders to stop thinking forward and start thinking backward. The early optimistic days of the Samurai Blitzkrieg were over. Reality was setting in. And in the meantime, the Chinese were preparing to intervene in force. General Zhu's defeat hadn't scared them off. It had been a wake-up call. The vast bureaucratic machinery of Ming China was swinging into action to stockpile resources and gather thousands of men to rescue little brother Korea. 
the Chinese ability to organize and supply a modern gunpowder army would put the Japanese to shame. Logistics was an area where the Chinese were very strong and the Japanese were very weak. The dragon was waking. It was a big dragon. It took a long time to wake up and get moving. But when it was moving, watch out. Until then, the Koreans would have to take care of themselves. But they were already turning Japan's occupation into a nightmare. The Korean people had started to fight back. Yi Sun Shin's navy had strangled the Samurai Blitzkrieg, caused it to run out of gas, but the Korean guerrilla movement would pin them down and make holding the country impossible. Last week, we saw the Japanese invasion throw Korea into a panic. Korea was a peaceful country and they hadn't fought a major war for almost 200 years, so the shock and sheer brutality of the Japanese invasion had seemed unstoppable at first. But the fall of their cities, the defeat of their armies, and the flight of their king had not broken the Korean will to resist. After a few months, shock and surprise wore off and gave way to anger and determination. Within weeks of the invasion, every province of Korea was taking up arms to fight the invader. The grassroots patriotism of the guerrillas would be one of the proudest Korean memories of the Imjin War. Some scholars have even called this the birth of Korean nationalism. The first great Korean guerrilla leader was Kwok Chayu, the Red Coat General. Now there's a story about this Red Coat. It's a story that's almost certainly not true, but it's so weird that I gotta include it. Warning, disgusting. See, the legend says that Kwok's Red Coat had been dyed with the first menstrual blood of Korean preteen girls. Yeah. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, I have no idea what to make of this. Even if it's not true, and I don't think it is true, it's one of the most bizarre legends I've ever heard. I'm baffled by the sheer logistics of it. How do people think this happened? Did they line up? I don't get it. But um, but either way, Kwok Cheu, let's call him <laughs> the minstrel boy, get it? The minstrel boy? Was a born rebel. He was smart and charismatic, but he was just not part of the system, man. Both before and during the war, he was constantly butting heads with the Korean authorities. But only a week after the Japanese invasion, Kwok Cheu rallied the people of Kyongsang province to fight the invader. The enemy is fast approaching. If you don't stand up and do something now, your wives and your parents and your children will all be slain. Are you going to just sit here and wait for the sword to fall? Join with me now and go to Chang'am Ford. If we can together prevent the Japanese from crossing the river, you will teach the enemy something about the bravery of the men in these parts. Kwok Chayu, the Red Coat General, ended up being one of the most effective Korean guerrilla leaders, his biggest quality being knowing when to fight and when not to fight, a core requirement of any successful guerrilla. A lot of the unsuccessful guerrilla leaders did not have this quality and got themselves killed. And he scored the very first Korean land victory of the Imjin War, when he defeated the Japanese at the Battle of Chang'am Ford. Kwok and his guerrillas were the rock in Japan's shoe, the Lego they kept stepping on throughout Kyongsang province in 1592. Now, there were three overall categories of Korean guerrillas. The first were regular soldiers who had been bypassed by the initial Japanese invasion. Many of them had retreated but then rallied and kept up the fight, even though they were now trapped behind enemy lines. The second category were local volunteers called the Ui Byong, or Righteous Armies. 
They were led by the educated officials, the Korean neo-Confucian elites, the Yangban, who already held some inherent authority from their high social status and literacy. The Yangban and their righteous armies made up the bulk of the Korean guerrilla movement, as people from all over the peninsula turned out under local leaders to defend their homes from the samurai. But the third category of Korean guerrillas were the monk soldiers. The Korean Buddhists were a persecuted class, the mortal enemy of the ruling Neo-Confucian ideology. To the Neo-Confucian Yangban, Buddhism was mystical, superstitious, and backwards, far from the enlightened, educated, virtuous principles of Confucius. The Neo-Confucians had closed Buddhist temples, destroyed their icons, seized their property, and forced monks to marry. So the Korean Buddhists might not be your first pick for a patriotic resistance movement. But when the Japanese invaded in 1592, King Sanjo reached out to Hu Jong, the master of the Western Mountain, an ancient monk regarded as the leader of the Korean Buddhist community. Like, hey dude, I know we've been kind of persecuting you for generations, but we screwed up, help us. And surprisingly, even though the Buddhists had basically been Korea's punching bag for the last two centuries, Hu Jong agreed. Partially out of patriotism, but the Buddhists also saw their chance to prove that they deserved to be part of their country, that they were as much a part of Korea as anyone else. On July 16, 1592, Hu Jong, now the commander of Korea's monk soldiers, issued a proclamation calling on Buddhist monks to take up arms, leave their isolated temples, and fight the Japanese invader. Here's some of what that manifesto said. Alas, the way of heaven is no more. The destiny of the land is on the decline. In defiance of heaven and reason, the cruel foe had the temerity to cross the sea aboard a thousand ships. Hold your banners high and arise, all you monk soldiers of the eight provinces. Put on the armor of the mercy of bodhisattvas. Hold in hand the treasured sword to fell the devil. Wield the lightning bolt of the eight deities and come forward. Lose no time, but arise. Beat back the sworn enemy. People fall victim to the foe's weapon, their blood staining the land. How can you just sit back in the mountains and watch? Arise. Onward to the battlefield to destroy the enemy. At least 8,000 Buddhist monks answered Hu Jong's call to arms, probably more. Now, the monks were always a minority of the Korean guerrillas, but they were some of the most effective fighters. They were disciplined, they followed orders, they had extremely high unit cohesion and morale. The warrior monks, with their long robes, shaved heads, and mighty spears, were the most dedicated fighters of the Korean guerrilla war. Even the Japanese were scared of them. These three categories of guerrillas, Korean soldiers, civilian volunteers, and warrior monks, fought a crazy, complicated series of campaigns across all eight provinces of Korea throughout 1592, as summer turned to autumn turned to winter. They ranged from simple raids and ambushes to full-on battles and sieges. I'm not even going to try to cover every campaign in detail. There are dozens of them. That would be a whole episode on its own. Just know that by autumn 1592, every single Korean province was up in arms and the Japanese were playing whack-a-mole and they were losing. Remember, the Japanese plan was for Kanishi Yukinaga's 1st and Kato Kiyomasa's 2nd divisions to blitz north as fast as they could, while the 3rd through 9th divisions disembarked behind them in Busan. 
Each division was assigned a certain Korean province to occupy and subdue, and it would be these units that had to deal with the Korean guerrillas. Ground zero of the Samurai Blitzkrieg had been Kyongsang Province, Korea's southeastern tip, where the Japanese had landed in Busan and devastated most of the cities in their path. If you don't know where this is, it's on my map. All the provinces are on my map that I have on UnknownSoldiersPodcast.com, on social media, everywhere. But this is the main stronghold of the Japanese right now, Kyongsang Province. But when Kanishi's and Kato's divisions had barreled north, they marched right past Chola Province, Korea's southwestern tip, leaving it mostly untouched. Chola contained all Yi Sun-shin's naval bases and most intact Korean forces in the south, and it became the epicenter of the Korean guerrilla movement. But every province had its own separate armies, and every attack threatened to cut Japanese supply lines and overwhelm detached forces. See, when the Japanese invasion ran out of gas, they really only held a narrow string of forts from Busan to Seoul all the way up to Kanishi's isolated division at Pyongyang. The Japanese strong points were like islands of occupation in a sea of resistance, barely holding on in a country that hated them more every day, and for darn good reason, I think. To secure Korea and gather supplies to survive the winter, they had to move out from that string of forts to try and occupy the rest of Korea. And they found the going very, very tough, as every Korean strongpoint resisted fanatically, and the Koreans began a counterattack and retake some of their lost cities. The Korean guerrilla movement had its own set of issues, though. All those colorful, dramatic personalities had the potential to cause problems. Oh look, it's one of my favorite themes. Sometimes they just couldn't get along. For instance, arguments between guerrilla leaders resulted in three failed attacks on the Japanese-held city of Kumsan. No less than three famous guerrilla leaders, the Yangban civilian Gogyong Mong, the angry old man Cho Hon, and the Buddhist monk Yongyu, all died glorious but futile deaths trying to take Kumsan, usually for pointless or outright stupid reasons. But even though all three attacks failed, the pressure they placed on Kumsan actually forced the Japanese to abandon the city. And this was the important thing. The Korean guerrilla movement didn't have to win its battles. And they usually didn't. The Japanese were still usually victorious in head-to-head -head confrontation. But even with the largest army ever fielded in the 16th century, Hideyoshi's daimyo did not have enough men to hold the countryside. Every Korean martyr was another call to arms. Every Korean defeat forced the Japanese to spread their forces out farther. By trying to defend everything, they ended up defending nothing. Nathaniel Green from the American Revolution might have said, fight, get beat, rise, fight again. And the Koreans were following that even if this guy existed 200 years later. Even when the Japanese tried to go on the offensive, they met with serious resistance. The 3rd Division attacked the city of Yonan on October 3rd and 6th, but lunatic resistance by the whole population drove off the Japanese attackers. There were places like Yonan all over Korea, hard little nuggets of resistance, defended by every man, woman, and child the samurai just could not break. On October 12th, a force of guerrillas scored a major victory by recapturing Kyongju, the capital of Kyongsang province. They accomplished this through a secret weapon, a strange ball of iron they threw into the Japanese camp. When the Japanese came up to examine it, it exploded in their faces. The bomb panicked them so much that they abandoned Kyongju to the natives. 
This was an early kind of grenade, a descendant of the weapon used by the Mongols in their invasion of Japan. The explosive device was called a Pigyok Chincholo, literally, Flying, Striking, Earthquake, Heaven, Thunder. <laughs> hey, Captain Park, what do we name the new weapon? I don't know, man, just try to describe it. And hey, no problem, boss. Flying, Striking, Earthquake, Heaven, Thunder, it is. But the overall point is, the Japanese weren't just being stopped. They were being driven back. The main priority was to hold the critical north-south road from Busan to Seoul to Pyongyang, the only supply route for Kanishi's stranded 1st Division. And to hold this road, the Japanese eventually had to abandon isolated strongpoints to concentrate their forces in more vital areas. They had to be strong in a few places rather than weak in many places. Hideyoshi's hold on Korea was getting weaker, not stronger, over time. The Korean guerrillas were pinning down and squeezing the life out of the Japanese occupation. And of course, Yi Sun Shin was still out there. Korea's brilliant, courageous, righteous admiral was a constant danger to the Japanese occupation. His fleet had already torn the Japanese several new buttholes, as we saw last week. Now Yi decided to take the fight to Busan, the only major port in Japanese hands, the main supply base for Hideyoshi's struggling army. On October 5th, Admiral Yi's combined fleet sailed into Busan Harbor with 75 Panoxon battleships. He was, this is a very risky move, because the Japanese had 500 ships in the area, the entirety of Hideyoshi's invasion armada, but the fortresses of Busan were also studded with captured Korean artillery. When Yi's ships entered the harbor, they sailed through a storm of fire and iron. But this was Yi Sun Shin, and he was hunting samurai. His ships tore through the invasion fleet, smashing ships into toothpicks with their heavy guns and lighting them on fire with flaming arrows. He couldn't get too close, and the attack on Busan wasn't the smashing victory that he wanted. Some sources even portrayed the Battle of Busan as a defeat. But when Yi withdrew after a hard day's work, the Korean Navy had sent another hundred Japanese ships to the bottom. This was the last big naval battle of the year, 1592, and it put a cap on one of the most incredible series of naval victories in human history. Yi Sun Shin had destroyed half of Hideyoshi's invasion fleet, without losing a single ship to enemy action. Korea ruled the waves, and Japan was losing its grip on the land. The last major battle of 1592 was the first siege of Jinju, Korea's finest hour yet. The Japanese concentrated thousands of troops to destroy the town of Jinju, a Korean stronghold in western Gyeongsang province. Chinju was defended by 3,700 Korean soldiers, led by Kim Si Min, and they had some surprises waiting for the samurai. Kim's troops were armed with the first set of locally manufactured Korean arquebus muskets, modeled on the Japanese weapons. The technological playing field was starting to level out. For six days, November 8th to 13th, the Japanese threw everything they had at the walls of Jinju. The Koreans resisted like demons, firing muskets and cannon and arrows, throwing heaven thunder bombs and stones, and even handfuls of ash to blind their opponents. The Japanese set up bamboo shields, built high towers to snipe at the defenders, and made attack after attack up the ladders. The bodies in their black armor filled the ditch beneath the walls of Jinju, and not even the bravest samurai could manage to mount the walls. At one point, the Japanese seemed on the verge of success, but then Kwok Chayu saved the day. 
the red-coated menstrual boy and his gorillas set fires all around the Japanese force in the mountains, fooling them to thinking a much larger army was on its way to lift the siege. This prompted an all-out final assault on November 12th. It was the hardest day yet, and Kim Si-min was killed by a musket ball to the head. The Koreans were almost out of ammunition when a ship came gliding up the river with arrows and musket balls. The Japanese had no choice. Their losses were catastrophic, they were deep in enemy territory, and guerrillas were gathering around them. They had to abandon the attack. The first siege of Jinju was Korea's greatest land victory yet, an inspiring triumph that stirred patriotic hearts all across the land. It was the first time the Japanese had made a full-blown effort to capture a Korean city, and failed. News of Jinju also infuriated Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who could not believe that this tiny force of Korean barbarians had withstood his samurai army. Hideyoshi would remember Jinju's defiance. Notice how I called it the first siege of Jinju? There's going to be a second. But that was in the future. As the year 1592 came to a close, even the most optimistic Japanese commanders had to admit that their invasion was not doing so hot. Far from the glory days of the Samurai Blitzkrieg, Hideyoshi's invasion army was still holding that same string of forts from Busan to Pyongyang. They were stuck. They were being choked out by Yi Sun-shin and the Korean Navy. They were being pinned down all over Korea by the courageous, resilient guerrillas. The Samurai were up a creek without a paddle. And you know what they say, bad things come in threes. The Navy and the guerrillas could stop the Samurai Blitzkrieg, but on their own, they could never throw it out of their homeland. But someone who could throw the Japanese out was on their way. On New Year's Day, 1593, over 40,000 Chinese soldiers crossed the Yalu River into Korea. The dragon had finally entered the Mjin War. Welcome to the year 1593, the year of the snake. What's going on in the rest of the world? William Shakespeare publishes his first poem, Venus and Adonis. The Inquisition puts the astronomer Giordano Bruno on trial for heresy. This is after Columbus, before the settlement of North America, and during the reign of Elizabeth I of England, Philip II of Spain, Akbar of the Mughal Empire in India, and Ivan the Terrible of Russia. Everyone in Europe smells really, really bad, but Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans don't smell quite as bad, because they believe in bathing, and the Europeans know that bathing too much is bad for you. Hope all that helps. Most of Hideyoshi's subordinates realized that the Korean campaign had hit a dead end. Most. One daimyo, famously aggressive and stubborn, still believed in his master's dream of invading China. The commander of the second division, the violent Buddhist, Mr. Banana Hat himself, Kato Kiyomasa. When Hideyoshi had planned his invasion, he had assigned each daimyo a province to conquer, and Kato's assignment was the toughest. Hamgyong province, which made up the far northeast corner of Korea, was a barren, mysterious wilderness. 
Even the Koreans were wary of its massive forests, high mountains, isolated villages. Basically the Korean equivalent of Alaska, or West Virginia. One location in Hamgyong province would become famous centuries later, when the U.S. Marines fought the Battle of Chosan Reservoir during another Korean War. Now, Kato Kiyomasa's adventures in Hamgyong province are the stuff of Japanese warrior legend. There are just tons of paintings of Kato, with his banana hat and his wild facial hair, wielding his signature three-bladed spear. When he was bored, Kato literally hunted Siberian tigers with that spear, which makes Siegfried and Roy look like freaking amateurs. But Korea remembers Kato Kiyomasa as their most hated enemy, the Demon General, who was even crueler and more violent than the other invaders. When Kato led his 20,000 men into Hamgyong province, he forced two locals to serve as his guides. When one of the Koreans said he didn't know their way, Kato had him torn apart. But the Korean army showed up to resist Kato's adventure near a grain warehouse called Haijong Chang. Korean General Han Kuk Ham's Northern Cavalry, some of the best troops in the Korean army, almost defeated Kato's samurai, but then the Japanese musketeers fell back into the grain storehouse. They blasted the Korean cavalry apart from barricades made from rice bales, and Kato won the Battle of Haijong Chang. Remember how I said back in the short round that the Japanese would come to rely on their musket-armed troops more and more? Well, we're seeing this happen right now. Kato bounced around Hamgyong province like a caffeinated house cat for the next four months, just messing up everything in his path. At the town of Horyong, he captured two of Korean King Sanjo's sons, Prince Im Hai and Prince Sun Hwa, who had been sent to rally support in the northeast. I guess it didn't work. The hostages were treated surprisingly well, considered how the Japanese treated everyone else, because they were valuable bargaining ships. Then Kato decided to try his strength against the Jurchen tribes across the Tumen River, which marks the modern border between North Korea and China. Like seriously, this is how Kato Kiyomasa sees everything. I hear tigers are pretty tough. Let's go fight one. I hear those guys are tough. Let's go fight them. But it turned out that the steppe nomads were pretty darn tough, the fighting was intense, and the outcome was pretty ambiguous. The next day, Kato withdrew back across the border and continued his rampage across Northeast Korea. Like, ooh, those Jurchen are pretty tough, we'll deal with them later. No one knew it, but Kato Kiyomasa's raid across the border was the first and last time Hideyoshi's army would set foot in the modern territory of China. But for all his achievements and all his reputation, Kato Kiyomasa ran into the same problems as all the rest of Hideyoshi's army. When his rampage came to an end in October 1592, it became clear that his 20,000-man force was far too small. The guerrilla war in Hamgyong province was as ferocious as it was everywhere else. The Japanese were split up all over this huge area in small garrisons, easy to surround and destroy, and the massive distances involved made them even more isolated than in the south. The Koreans would pick off small garrisons throughout the winter of 1592-93. Even Japan's fiercest general could not tame Korea. And if that wasn't bad enough, winter had come. Winter in Korea is astonishingly cold. Freezing winds scream south from Manchuria. Blankets of snow cover the landscape. Ice covers the rivers. Breath freezes in front of your face. The Japanese were shocked by the frozen hell that their conquest had become. They'd never experienced anything like this. 
Most of the troops in the north were from the warm island of Kyushu, and they would die in a frosty foreign land, far from the warm fields of home. The winter made every Japanese problem worse. The big problem, as it always had been, was logistics. Up until now, the Japanese had been living off captured food supplies, but those were gone. Food supplies from the south were almost non-existent, with Yi Sun-shin's navy and the Korean guerrillas both pinching that vital road, the carotid artery of the Japanese invasion from Busan to Seoul to Pyongyang. And sending men out into the Korean countryside to forage was sentencing them to death by Korean guerrillas, who were happy to pick off any isolated Japanese force they found. And if all that wasn't bad enough, random Japanese soldiers were getting killed by wild Siberian tigers. I imagine the tigers were having a blast. Oh look, delivery's here, and it comes in tin cans too. Hideyoshi's army was growing smaller every day. Thousands of Japanese had died at the hands of Korean guerrillas, been sent to Davy Jones' locker by Yi Sun-shin's navy, or fallen to starvation and disease. By the end of 1592, maybe a third of the invasion force was dead. Barely 100,000 men were left in Korea, still huge, but much less than it had been, and the spearhead divisions had suffered the most. Kato Kiyomasa's 2nd Division suffered a 39% attrition rate, with only 14,000 men left to hold the enormous Hamgyong province. The survivors were miserable, hundreds of miles from home, cut off from their supplies, starving, freezing, succumbing to despair. The situation was worse than Pyongyang, at the extreme end of the Japanese supply line. Kanishi Yukinaga's 1st Division was in a wretched condition. Here's how one chronicler describes the situation in Pyongyang. Some got sick in their bodies, some others developed tuberculosis. Every day our troops became thinner. Someone suffering the misery of these illnesses received rice, salt, and sake as food for the throat, and after a while chestnuts and millet. Even the horses were unwell. No matter which daimyo they served, the men grew weak and had a dark skin. If they couldn't drink sake, there was nothing with which to comfort their spirits. Yep, that's what starving, freezing, demoralized soldiers need. Alcohol. Good thinking, Mr. Samurai. This mindset seems to be pretty universal across time and space, though. Kanishi's starving, miserable 1st Division had held Pyongyang for six months. But that time was coming to a close. The dragon was on its way. One Chinese official had stayed in contact with the Japanese throughout the winter. We need to introduce this guy, because he's going to be around to mess everything up for the rest of the series, especially next week. Shen Wei Jing was a merchant who spoke a little Japanese, and this qualified him, somehow, to be China's chief diplomat of the Imjin War. But Shen was a schemer, deceitful, untrustworthy, a con artist, who I will refer to as Shifty Shen. Now, Shifty Shin had been negotiating with Kanishi Yukinaga for the last few months, trying to get the Japanese to withdraw from Korea diplomatically. These two men, Shen Weijing and Kanishi Yukinaga, would be their country's main diplomatic representatives for the rest of the war. Like any hustler, Shen was trying to get credit for getting rid of the Japanese, so he was trying to negotiate a peace. Unfortunately for him, this was exactly what his bosses in China didn't want, because they wanted to liberate Korea and punish Japan. So when Shifty Shen got Kanishi to sign a 50-day truce, this A infuriated the Koreans. They didn't trust Shifty Shen because they believed he would sell them for a buck if he could, and he would. But 
Second, it got him into trouble back in Beijing, because Big Bro was finally ready to come to the rescue. Because in October 1592, Ming China finally crushed the Ningxia Rebellion. The final battle was colossal on an Asian scale, with thousands of men scaling the walls as hundreds of cannons shook the earth. With this festering boil finally lanced, Emperor Wan Li could turn his undivided attention to the Korean Emergency, as the Chinese called it. This crazy little upstart Hideyoshi had dared to challenge the Son of Heaven, and it was time for him to be chastised. Emperor Wan Li appointed a civilian official named Song Ying Cheng as the military commissioner for China's three northeast provinces, including Liaodong province bordering Korea. Song was competent and a workaholic. He was a little machine. He set to work producing weapons, stockpiling supplies, and gathering soldiers. By the end of 1592, Song Ying Chang had concentrated three months' worth of food and thousands of horses in Liaodong province, along with 44,000 troops, to expel the Japanese invader. They would be led by the hero of the Ningxia Rebellion. General Li Ru Song, China's supreme commander in Korea, was an experienced general from a famous military family. General Li, spelled L-I, not L-E-E, -E, this ain't the Civil War, was a veteran of multiple campaigns, and he took the Japanese threat extremely seriously. The might of Ming China, with its best general and one of the most advanced logistics systems in the world, was prepared to punish the impudence of the Japanese robbers. The Chinese army was a diverse force, with lots of cavalry and infantry drawn from across the empire. The infantry were armed with crossbows, spears, and bows for the most part. Some of them did have muskets, but the Japanese muskets were more advanced and much lighter, and much more numerous. But the Chinese had focused their gunpowder technology in a different area. Li Rusong's army marched into Korea with the strongest artillery train on earth, with massive guns like the Great General Gun and the Crouching Tiger Gun that could batter down even the strongest walls. Literally, 2,000 cannon, a smorgasbord of firepower, rolled across the frozen roads to liberate Korea. Li Rusong and his army crossed the frozen Yalu River from China into Korea on New Year's Day, 1593. King Sanjo and the Korean court greeted them as liberators. It also made them super happy when Li Rusong, who hated Shifty Shen, threatened to kill him on the spot when he learned of his dubious diplomacy. Li ended up eventually throwing Shifty Shen in jail. Soon the Chinese were in meetings with Yu Song Nyong, the king's dedicated minister and Yi Sun Shen's childhood friend. Yu Song Nyong had been promoted to prime minister in December 1592. Now he provided the Chinese with maps, intelligence, and as much food as the Koreans could gather together. They also had troops to march alongside the Chinese, including units of warrior monks. The Koreans were going to be on point in the liberation of their country. Big Bro would come, but Little Bro was going to keep fighting. Kanishi Yukinaga had only 15,000 men to defend Pyongyang, and many of these were starving and dead on their feet. They faced almost 60,000 Chinese and Korean troops, 43,000 men in Li Rusong's army, 10,000 Korean troops under General Yi Il, and 4,000 warrior monks under Hu Zhong, the master of the Western Mountain. And of course, they had 2,000 cannon, a massive armory that no country on earth could equal. 
a hammer of the gods to smite the Japanese invader. Lee Rusong's army marched south slowly, confidently, sending out multiple scouts and spies. Thanks to the Korean guerrillas and Chinese scouts, Kanishi Yukinaga had no idea what was happening outside the walls of Pyongyang. He had actually been trying to open peace negotiations through Shen Weijing and he thought those were still ongoing. He saw the writing on the wall. The Christian daimyo was looking for any way to get Japan out of this conflict. But if Church Boy needed any more evidence that Japan could no longer win the war, he was about to get it. On February 5th, 1593, Li Rusong's massive army marched out of the fog to assemble on the cold, snow-covered plains outside Pyongyang. Thousands of Chinese soldiers in their studded brigandine armor lined up in disciplined ranks outside the walls, and others hauled light and heavy guns into position. Korean warrior monks in their long robes and shaved heads stood beside them. The Japanese soldiers stared down from the walls, starving, frostbitten, and desperate, but still determined to fight to the last. The icy wind clawed at the armies outside and inside Pyongyang. The samurai were about to face the dragon. Pyongyang would not be an easy nut to crack. It was a strongly defended city with high, thick walls protected by the Taedong River to the east. There were very few Korean citizens left in Pyongyang. They had mostly been forced out into the cold since they were just extra mouths to feed. Or not feed. The Japanese didn't really care if the Korean civilians lived or died. Kanishi positioned his troops all along the walls and a large detachment guarded each main gate. The key terrain was Mount Moranbong, which lay just to the north of the city and was also strongly defended. Mount Moranbong overlooked the rest of Pyongyang, and if the Chinese captured this position, they could lob artillery shells straight into the heart of the city. Li Rusong's plan was the same strategy he had used against the Ningxia Rebellion, surround the city on every side and open fire with his superior artillery. He pointed out the Japanese deficiency in heavy guns. Japanese weapons have a range of a few hundred paces, while my great cannon have a range of five to six li. How can we not be victorious? A li was about half a kilometer, so this is a massive advantage in range. Li Rusong ordered that anyone running away would be beheaded on the spot, and that no Japanese soldier would be taken alive. The Battle of Pyongyang began on February 6th, when the Buddhist monks assaulted the stronghold of Mount Moranbong. They were led personally by Hu Zhong, the ancient monk who had called them to arms in the summer. They fell in hundreds, shot by muskets or slashed across their bare necks by katanas. But the monks surged forward, and soon they were joined by Chinese reinforcements. The cold winter air was split with screams and slashing weapons, as Kanishi Yukinaga himself led the defense in his full samurai armor. But it was hopeless. The warrior monks and the Chinese conquered Mount Moranbong, and this set the allies up to surround Pyongyang on three sides. Li Rusong decided to order a massive all-out assault. This would be one of the decisive days of the Imjin War, Hours in which the snow would be stained red and the mountains would rumble with thunder. It was February 8th, 1593, a day that no one would ever forget. Chinese, Koreans, Japanese, all of them would have the Battle of Pyongyang seared into their minds. Early that morning, the Chinese soldiers ate a quick breakfast before falling into formation. They advanced slowly. 
their tight serried ranks looking like a great lizard creeping across the landscape. The attackers look through the falling snow to see armored Japanese warriors on the walls, waving their swords and spears and muskets in the faces of their enemies. The attack began. Every Chinese cannon, from the great generals to the crouching tigers to the small pea shooters, sent a hail of cannonballs and projectiles, kicking up snow and smashing into the walls. The thunder of the guns echoed off the mountains, forcing men to scream to be heard above the bombardment. Japanese warriors tumbled from the stone edifice, screaming or silent. Chinese and Korean archers loosed fire arrows into the heart of the city, and soon all of Pyongyang was ablaze. Under this storm of ice and fire, the Chinese rolled forward wheeled ladder carts and began to ascend the walls. The slaughter was immense. The sky was nearly red with smoke and flame as hundreds, thousands of Chinese soldiers fell to the muskets and the swords of Kanishi's men. But more came. The thunder of the cannons shattered the gates and drove defenders from the walls. Many of the Chinese cannons were firing canister shot, or projectiles that shattered into hundreds of pieces like flechettes, tearing flesh and blood and bone. Li Ru Song himself rode up and down the lines, urging his men forward, promising rewards for the first man on the wall and executions for anyone who retreated. He had at least one horse shot out from under him, and personally executed at least one fleeing Chinese soldier. Some sources talk about the Chinese climbing up the bodies of their own dead to ascend the walls and come to grips with the Japanese. Finally, handfuls of Chinese and Korean soldiers scratched out a foothold on the wall and forced the Japanese back. The cannons shattered the four city gates, opening gaps for the Allies to pour through. The attacking tide was unstoppable. Kanishi's malnourished, frozen soldiers, far from home, could not resist the overwhelming courage of their foes and the concentrated blasts of Chinese artillery. They were forced off the walls and soon a street fight raged in the ruins of Pyongyang. Chinese and Koreans with their long spears and short swords, and Japanese samurai and ashigaru with katanas and yari, struggling and stabbing in the snow amidst the fire and smoky sky of Pyongyang. With nowhere left to run, Kanishi and his men fell back to an earthen wood barricade in the city courtyard. Kanishi had ordered the barricade built only days earlier, and his foresight saved the Japanese from certain destruction. If there is one place you don't want to be in the Imjin War, it's charging musket-armed Japanese infantry behind a barricade. Because as the Chinese and Koreans poured in at them through the burning city, the Ashigaru musketeers fired from behind their earthworks. Volley after volley ripped into the packed attackers, and the Allies fell back into the twilight, leaving scores of dead and giving the Japanese just a little breathing space. Kanishi Yukonaga decided that it was past time to get the heck out of Dodge. Holding Pyongyang against this firestorm was a lost cause. As soon as darkness fell, Kanishi's troops began their escape over the frozen Taedong River, slipping away without the Chinese even noticing. The Japanese 1st Division left behind thousands of dead and wounded, but somehow, they managed to escape the death trap at Pyongyang. One Japanese chronicler said, There was hardly a gap between the dead bodies that filled the surroundings of Mount Moranbank. Finally, when we had repulsed the enemy, they burned the food storehouses in several places, so there was now no food. On the night of the seventh day, we evacuated the castle and made our escape. Wounded men were abandoned, while those who were not wounded but simply exhausted crawled, almost prostrate, along the road. 
See, Kanishi and his men had escaped Pyongyang, but now they faced an even greater test. There was supposed to be a string of forts running from Pyongyang to Seoul, a line of supply depots for Kanishi's division in case they had to retreat. These had been planned in advance. But another Japanese commander had been so shocked by the Chinese arrival and had heard that Pyongyang had been destroyed, so he had abandoned most of these forts. The retreating 1st Division, or what was left of it, faced 11 painful days of starving, freezing retreat on the road to Seoul. Men went snow blind, fell over dead, or just sat down and gave up. It sounds like Napoleon's retreat from Moscow in 1812, or the British retreat from Kabul in 1842, way back in the graveyard of empires. A Japanese samurai, Yoshino Jingozemon, remembered the scene. Because it is a cold country, there is ice and deep snow, and hands and feet are burned by the snow, and this gives rise to frostbite which makes them swell up. The only clothes we had were the garments worn under our armor, and even men who were normally gallant resembled scarecrows on the mountains and fields because of their fatigue, and were indistinguishable from the dead. The miserable survivors of Kanishi Yukinaga's 1st Division limped into Seoul on February 19th. They had left hundreds of dead on their march south, clumps of huddled samurai and ashigarus starving or frozen, across the roads of North Korea. This was the fate of the unit that only a few months ago had been the glorious vanguard of the Samurai Blitzkrieg. The Japanese were in retreat everywhere. Units were being called in from all over Korea to concentrate on Seoul and resist the Chinese advance. The dragon had both eyes open now and his fire was terrible. Hideyoshi's generals would need every man in their army to fight the Ming Dynasty. The Battle of Pyongyang was the turning point of the Imjin War. In this massive, bloody, chaotic battle, living proof that people went hard as heck everywhere in the 16th century, the samurai had seen the might of the Son of Heaven. The power of the Chinese artillery, the amazing determination of their troops, and the vast logistical network that had projected them into Korea had broken the tip off Toyotomi Hideyoshi's katana. Yi Sunshin's navy had choked the Japanese out, the guerrillas had pinned them down, and at Pyongyang, the Chinese had delivered a massive donkey punch to the face. It was the crushing blow that destroyed the Japanese warlord's dream of invading China. The Japanese had lost the war. Whether they would realize it was another question entirely. The defeat at Pyongyang forced Hideyoshi's daimyo to face facts. They were spread thinner than cheap toilet paper and in serious danger from the Chinese buzzsaw. Pyongyang gave the Japanese a healthy respect for Chinese firepower and a hesitancy to face the mighty Ming in such a major battle ever again. It was time to fall back and concentrate at Seoul and maybe even retreat all the way to Busan. Christian daimyo Kanishi Yukinaga, who now had first-hand experience of Chinese firepower, was the loudest voice for retreat. He had led the Samurai Blitzkrieg from Busan to Pyongyang, and now he was saying, dudes, this is busted. We need to get out of here. 
Most daimyo agreed with Kanishi, but his arch-rival Kato Kiyomasa had a different idea. When a Chinese messenger came to Kato's camp in Hamgyong province and ordered him to surrender, Kato tied a young Korean woman, supposedly the most beautiful in the province, to a tree. Then he forced the emissary to watch as he impaled her with a spear. There was a reason the Koreans called him the Demon General. But even Kato had to stare reality in the face. He was in danger of being cut off. Kato had to retreat back from the wild northeast to Seoul. They were harassed by gorillas and battered by the weather the whole way through the mountains, a miserable march the Demon General led with his usual fury. The Chinese and Koreans were also having issues. The Koreans were upset that Li Ru's song allowed the Japanese to escape the trap at Pyongyang. But the Chinese had different goals in mind than annihilating the enemy. Li Ru's song wasn't worried about wiping the Japanese out. His job was to hustle them out of Korea, and if that meant letting them escape, so be it. The Koreans, understandably, wanted revenge. They were frustrated with Li Ru's song's slow pursuit, but the man wasn't trying to take too many chances. The one time he did take a big risk, in fact, it came back to bite him. The Chinese moved south after the Battle of Pyongyang, in the bloody footsteps of Kanishi's retreat. General Lee recaptured the old Korean capital of Kaesong on February 19th, and a few days later he pushed across the modern Korean DMZ, leaving North Korea and entering South Korea when he crossed the Imjin River. As they marched south with zero issues, Lee got cocky. He decided that Pyongyang had broken the invader's spirit, and that a faster advance might finish off the Japanese robbers. But Kato Kiyomasa was not the only Japanese commander who hated the idea of retreat. The commander of the 6th Division was Kobayakawa Takakage, a salty old Age of War veteran, the oldest daimyo in Korea. Kobayakawa mocked the younger daimyo for their timidity, and he led his forces north towards a confrontation with Li Song's advance guard. With any luck, he could reverse the tide of the war and scare the dragon into retreat. The Chinese and Japanese collided on February 27, 1593, at the small town of Byokje Guan, north of Seoul and west of the modern town of Weizhongbu. I know the region pretty well from my tours in Korea since I served a few miles to the northeast at Camp Casey near Dongduchan. Li Ru's song had gotten overconfident. Convinced that the Japanese were on the verge of evacuating Seoul, he had pushed an advance guard ahead and followed it with a small cavalry force. He had some light artillery, but had left the big boys behind. This was a major mistake, since it was the firepower of Chinese cannon, not the lances of their cavalry, that really scared the kimonos off the Japanese. When Li Song's cavalry ran into Japanese troops, he was eager at first, pushing his armored horsemen to the fight, watching them thunder through the mud and lay about them with their swords. But soon the Chinese came into a narrow valley and saw a much larger force awaiting them, led by the old salty daimyo, Kabayakawa Takakage. Li Song's small cavalry force was heavily outnumbered. The Battle of Byokje Guan rolled back and forth as Li's cavalry slashed and battered their way through the mud, and more and more Chinese and Japanese troops both called up and entered the fray. Whenever the cavalry caught Japanese infantry in the open, they ran them down and scattered their formations. But then the Japanese infantry retreated to the hills and forests and opened fire with their muskets. 
The Chinese cavalry had lots of trouble in the thawing, thick Korean mud, and the Chinese short sword was no match for the longer Japanese katana in close combat. Li Rusong himself was almost killed by a fierce samurai with a long spear, but one of his subordinates died taking the blow to save his general. The battle turned into a messy slugfest, armored soldiers slipping and sliding in the mud, the Japanese too close to use their muskets effectively, the Chinese forced to fight dismounted due to the sticky morass. By noon, the superior Japanese numbers forced the Chinese to fall back. They conducted a desperate fighting retreat as musket shots brought down one brave imperial soldier after another. The Chinese had lost the Battle of Byokjeguan and they had to call off the march on Seoul, at least for now. Li Rusong retreated back to Kaesong, took his helmet off and basically said, Ooh, all right, plan B. The Battle of Byokjeguan is the most controversial battle of the Imjin War. Chinese, Japanese, and Korean accounts all disagree on how many troops there were, who made the big mistakes, how important it was, what actually went down. Japanese accounts of this war make a lot out of this battle. They claim it was the most important battle of the war because it talks about the superiority of the Japanese warrior and his samurai spirit. Yeah, and I'd bet outnumbering your enemy by a massive margin helped a little bit too. The battle probably did a lot to make the Chinese more cautious going forward. This was its major effect. But all things considered, the battle did not change the overall situation. The Chinese were still out there. They were still building up their strength. The Japanese were still stuck out on a limb, isolated by the Korean guerrillas and staring down the dragon. Sure, they had popped the dragon on the nose, but he would be back, and everybody knew it. But for now, General Lee decided to pull back and reset before he resumed the offensive. His troops were sick, the mud was thick, and his horses were dying from lack of fodder. The encounter at Byokjeguan had been a pretty rough wake-up call, and he wanted all his ducks in a row before his next move. Over angry Korean protests, including the pleas of Prime Minister Yoo Song-ryong, please drive the Japanese out, hurry, Lee pulled his army back to Pyongyang to rest, refit, and prep for the summer campaign. The blame game had already started. Some of Lee's subordinates criticized his conduct of the campaign so far, especially the recent defeat. Lee Rusong blamed the civilian organizer of the campaign, Song Ying Chang, saying his civilian interference had messed everything up. Some Chinese blamed the Koreans, the Koreans blamed the Chinese. And Chinese conduct was making the Koreans suspicious. General Lee had been shaken by the defeat and was exploring diplomatic options for removing the Japanese from Korea. There was a rumor, a factual rumor, that the Japanese proposed to divide Korea between them, with China receiving the northern half and Japan the southern half, along basically the modern borders of North and South Korea. Some Koreans worried that the Chinese were going to sell them down the river because the war was getting too expensive. The Chinese had no intention of doing this, but there was suspicion. King Sanjo and Yu Song-neong did their best to keep tensions low, but little bro was starting to distrust big bro's motives in this war. But if the Chinese and Koreans were having command problems, so were the Japanese. Banana Hat, Kato Kiyomasa, and his 2nd Division had finally returned to Seoul, and this brought the number of Japanese troops in the city up to almost 60,000 men, over half of all remaining Japanese forces in Korea. But the big question was, what do we do now? What do we do? Do we fish or cut bait? Without Hideyoshi and Korea to unify and direct them, 
the aggressive, ambitious, hot-headed daimyo who all disagreed had no one to make the big decision. Theoretically, Ukita Hideye, Hideyoshi's son-in-law, was the commander-in-chief. But there's a reason I've barely mentioned him so far. He was 19 years old, inexperienced, and no one really listened to him. Lack of unified command hamstrung the Japanese decision-making process. They just sat in Seoul, arguing as February turned to March. Once again, the two rivals were Church Boy and Banana Hat, Kanishi Yukinaga and Kato Kiyomasa. Kanishi said, Look guys, it is time to shut this thing down. Another battle like Pyongyang is gonna wipe us out. Most of the daimyo, who had just gone through a miserable winter where the trees all spoke Korean, said, yeah, let's skip town. But Kato Kiyomasa and Kubayakawa Takakage, the guy who just won this battle against the Chinese, said, you're all a bunch of lazy cowards. We could defeat a million Chinese if we wanted to. Kato, in particular, was ranting and raving, we can march to Beijing right now and burn down its palaces. Give me 20,000 men and I will march to Beijing. And Kanishi was like, dude, you weren't at Pyongyang. Shut your mouth. Kato called Kanishi a coward. Kanishi called Kato a fool. It's business as usual. The trouble with staying in Seoul was food. The huge Japanese army in Seoul was down to like a rice cake per man per day by this point. Going out to get more food was an occupier's nightmare. Seoul was surrounded by this point by swarms of guerrillas who took any foraging party apart like a Humpty Dumpty, and DoorDash just wasn't an option. It was impossible to gather food from the countryside as long as these little bands of lunatics hovered around the city. There were Korean strongholds, tiny hill fortresses along the rivers and the mountains, and they were like a cordon around the samurai armies concentrated in Seoul. The most annoying fortress of all was Hangju. This was a hilltop stockade on a steep cliff 14 miles west of Seoul, overlooking the Han River. Hangju's proximity, its closeness to Seoul, made it a major problem for the Japanese. It was one of the sources of all these raids. Since no one else had any ideas, the daimyo decided that capturing this fortress would at least take a little pressure off their foraging parties. The commander of Hangju was the outstanding Korean land general of the Imjin War, 55-year-old Kwan Yul. Kwan Yul was one of the Yangban, the local civilian leaders who had raised the righteous armies. He had end up, ended up as commander of all Korean forces in Chola province. He had defended it from Japanese invasion throughout the Guerrilla War of 1592. Kwan Yul had defeated the Japanese at the battles of Unchi and Ichi, which kept them away from Yi Sun Shin's naval bases. He was covering Yi Sun Shin's back while Admiral Yi covered the water. But in early 1593, Kwan Yul moved his forces north to participate in the hopeful liberation of Seoul. When the Chinese were defeated at Byokje-Guan and the attack was called off, he positioned himself at Hangzhou and fortified the castle like he was preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Quan only had around 2,300 troops, including a unit of warrior monks, but over the last few weeks, Hangzhou had been filled with refugees, Korean peasants, and townspeople fleeing the terrible wrath of the samurai. Every man, woman, and child in Hangzhou would fight to the death in the coming battle. On March 14, 1593, a massive Japanese army marched out of Seoul's western gate. It was led by almost half of the great daimyo, an all-star cast including the Catholic Kanishi Yukinaga, 
Hideyoshi's son-in-law, Ukita Hidei, and the salty old man, Kabayakawa Takakage. They led almost 30,000 men, probably a third of all Japanese forces in Korea, with the goal of eradicating this tiny, troublesome little hilltop barricade. Kwan Yul's troops and the refugees inside the barricade prepared to fight for their lives. This is a very mismatched battle, 30,000-man sam samurai army versus little hilltop barricade. But the stage was set for one of the proudest moments in Korean history. The Japanese fanned out to surround Hangzhou, thousands upon thousands of armored men, samurai in their demon masks with their long spears, peasant Ashigaru with bows and spears and thousands of arquebus muskets. They looked up the steep, grassy slopes of the palisade where the Korean defenders looked down. Counting only fighting men, the Koreans were outnumbered 13 to 1. And this was a Japanese force full of some of the best generals in the army, the veterans of dozens of battles and campaigns, armed to the teeth, Hideyoshi Samurai Elite. It's no wonder that the Koreans shook with fear that many thought of fleeing or even surrendering to whatever mercy they were going to get. But Guan Yul's leadership and personal example held his men firm. They could hold, and they would hold. He encouraged them to think of their families, their country, to think of the civilians in the barricade with them, to think of Yi Sun Shin and Kwok Jiu, all the men who would defy the samurai. And plus, they had no choice. It was victory or death. The Japanese began their assault at 6 a.m. on March 14th. Kanishi Yukinaga led the first attack in person, thousands of armored men rushing up the slope in a heedless charge. But the terrain worked against them. The combat troops had to charge up a steep hill before trying to scale the walls, and this laid them open to fire. The Koreans shot arrows and their muskets, rolled stones down the hill, and even threw logs off the walls to crash down the slopes, taking dozens of men with them. The terrain also kept the Japanese arquebus musketeers from wreaking their usual havoc, since Hangzhou's elevated position meant that musket balls just arced over the fortress and didn't hit their targets. And at this point, the Koreans revealed a secret weapon. Like Yi Sun Shin's turtle ships, the Hawaii Chu, or fire wagon, is a symbol of Korean military innovation. The Hawaii was a wooden cart topped by a honeycomb-style mount, which could be filled with 200 arrows or 100 rockets. The result was that the Koreans had a 100-barrel multiple rocket launcher in 1593. It was difficult to use effectively since the rockets were about as accurate as a wiffle ball in a hurricane, and reloading it took ages. But you know what the Hawaii was perfect for? Massed infantry targets. Kwan Yul rolled his fire wagons out, and they unleashed screaming hell into the Japanese attackers. Showers of fire and flame that blazed like the 4th of July. Samurai were set on fire, and rockets caused Japanese musketeers to pop and burn as their powder was set alight. The Japanese came up the hill once, twice, three, four times. They built makeshift towers so the musketeers could snipe down into the fortress, but these towers crumbled under fire arrows and rockets. Ukita Hidei, Hideyoshi's son-in-law, managed to breach the Korean barricade, but he was wounded and forced back, his troops leaving their dead piled at the breach. Finally, salty old Kabayakawa forced the Koreans back to their second defensive line. Their backs were to the river, nowhere to run. The fighting was brutal, desperate, intense. The Japanese came on like furies, and the Koreans threw everything in the kitchen sink back at them. 
They reached across the barricades to stab with spears or thrust with swords, fired arrows and muskets and rockets, threw pots of boiling water and rocks and even handfuls of dirt. Some of the most famous defenders of Hangzhou were the Korean women, who carried rocks in their skirts to the top of the wall for their menfolk to throw at the enemy. The traditional Korean women's skirt is known to this day as a Hangzhou skirt. The Japanese tried to set the wooden palisade on fire, but the Korean women doused the fires with water. Guan Yul himself was fighting along the barricade, sword in hand, his staff of authority abandoned behind him next to his commander's chair. When his men were almost out of ammunition at the last minute, a few ships came up the Han River with a cargo of arrows. The Koreans slammed them into the Hawaiicha and fired the arrows into the faces of screaming, terrifying samurai, sending more bodies tumbling down the hill. When the sun set on Hangzhou, Guan Yul and his force had survived. The Japanese retreated. The Koreans had withstood nine separate attacks, attacks by the very best the Japanese had to offer, and they were still standing. The Japanese dead numbered into the hundreds and maybe the thousands. It was a disaster for the Japanese, their worst ever defeat on land by the Koreans, and a small barricade that they should have just rolled over based on what happened last year. The Battle of Hangzhou was irrefutable proof that Hideyoshi's invasion had failed. Less than a year ago, they would have steamrolled Hangzhou, but the Koreans had found their courage and their willpower. This was their country, and they would defend it to the last man and woman. Yu Song Neong described how the Koreans reacted in the aftermath of Hangzhou. Kwan Yul ordered his soldiers to gather the dead bodies of the enemy and vent their anger by tearing them apart and hanging them on the branches of the trees. The way this would work in an action movie is if the Japanese said, You want a piece of me? And Kwan Yul had said, Yeah, I'll take several pieces. And then he took a bunch of pieces. But this just goes to demonstrate how much the war had affected the Korean people. War is a brutalizing experience. The peaceful, content Koreans had been hardened and embittered by the invasion of their calm land. They had become warriors, not out of choice, but out of necessity. The samurai had been defeated, partially by the Chinese, the Chinese were essential, but mostly by the courage of patriotic Koreans like Yi Sun Shin, Guak Jeyu, Kwan Yul, the Buddhist monk soldiers, and the women of Hangzhou. The Korean government had failed them, but the people had prevailed. This is why most of, the, most of this resistance is called the birth of Korean nationalism. The king failed us, but the nation survived. The nation fought back. Hangzhou was one of Korea's legendary battles, a patriotic memory to this day, the Korean Bunker Hill, along with Admiral Yi's victory at Han Sando and the first siege of Jinju, the siege of Hangzhou was regarded as one of Korea's three great victories in the first stage of the Imjin War. Guan Yul, his garrison, and their heroic stand turned the psychological tide of the war. The Japanese realized they had no hope of holding Seoul, not against resistance like that, and the Korean guerrillas came closer every day. The daimyo took account, and they learned that out of an initial 150,000 men in the invasion force, now they could count less than 50,000 fit for duty. The rest had been killed or disabled by Korean spears, Chinese cannons, Yi Sun Shen's navy, rocket launchers, turtle ships, typhus, starvation, frostbite, snow blindness, suicide, crouching tiger guns, actual crouching tigers, logs rolling down the slopes of Hangzhou, and probably spontaneous combustion at this point. 
and the Korean victory at Hangzhou convinced Li Rusong that the Japanese were in trouble. The Chinese began to march south again, much more cautiously this time, but eager to reprise the Battle of Pyongyang against Seoul. They had been reinforced, resupplied, and counted on a swarm of Korean guerrillas that hemmed in Korea's occupied capital. And at around the same time as the Battle of Hangzhou, Yi Sun-shin reminded the Japanese exactly who was in charge in the seas around Korea. On March 12th, Yi hit the Japanese naval base at Ungchon, and he hit it again three more times over the next two weeks. Cooperating with Kwok Jae-woo's guerrillas and a detachment of monk soldiers on board his ships, Admiral Yi led multiple attacks on the Japanese fortifications. The enemy had built long walls on the eastern and western mountainsides where he took up positions planted with multicolored war banners and rained gunfire towards us in a haughty manner. Our warships darted forward with one accord from right and left, while shooting cannonballs and arrows like thunder and lightning. This was done twice a day, killing the enemy robbers in countless numbers. And scratch another fistful of Japanese ships. At this point, Yi Sun-shin was seriously the Japanese boogeyman. At this point, Hideyoshi, still back in Japan, still not in Korea, was sending angry letters to his generals, promising to bring thousands of men over and take personal command. And the daimyo were not having this for a second. They could barely feed the men they had in Korea what were reinforcements going to accomplish. The only solution was to retreat. Kanishi Yokonaga wrote a letter to Chinese General Li Rusong asking for a truce. Li responded, sure, absolutely, I want that too. But you have to march south to Busan. Then we can talk. Until then, I'm coming for you. The last person who needed to be convinced was Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Under pressure from all his generals, even Kato Kiyomasa signed a letter outlining how difficult the situation had become, the warlord of Japan gave way. He agreed to a truce with the Chinese and the Koreans, a truce that was conditional on Japanese withdrawal and the release of the two Korean princes that Kato Kiyomasa had captured. Once they had reached Busan, diplomacy would resume. The Japanese envoys, led by Kanishi Yukinaga, met none other than Shifty Shin Weijing, 10 miles south of Seoul, near the town of Yongsan on May 9th. They agreed to a ceasefire, the release of the captive Korean princes, and a withdrawal down to Busan. The Koreans were furious that they were left out of peace negotiations entirely, and angrily demanded that Lee Rusong attack and drive the Japanese out of Korea entirely. But the Chinese were worried that the entirely understandable Korean desire for revenge would mess everything up. They were looking for peace, the Chinese, at the lowest price possible, while Korea was looking for peace that was as complete as it could be. The two allies had two different goals. Korean resentment caused more bad blood between the little bro and big bro, with General Lee almost having Yu Song-leong arrested at one point. Either way, the Japanese signed the deal. They would have peace for now. Hideyoshi's army had finally seen the writing on the wall. Yi Sun-shin's navy had strangled their supply lines by sea. The Korean guerrilla movement pinned them down and made the country impossible to hold. The firepower and resources of Ming China had punched them in the face, and despite the victory at Byokjaeguan, the situation had not changed. The Chinese firepower was still overwhelming. And at the great victory of Hangzhou, 
The Koreans had shown the Japanese that they weren't scared of them anymore, that they could fight and they could win. The Japanese had admitted defeat. The Imjin War was over. Psych! You thought I was serious? This is a four-part series. It wasn't over. Not by a long shot. On May 19, 1593, the depleted Japanese army marched out of Seoul. They marched south, retracing the steps of the Samurai Blitzkrieg with Busan in their sights. Many dreamed of home. Tens of thousands of Japanese had perished in Korea, victims of Hideyoshi's ambitions, and they counted themselves lucky not to be faced down in some ditch along the road from Pyongyang. Many people thought the war was over. Many of the Japanese, many of the Chinese, many of the Koreans. But some Korean leaders, people like Prime Minister Yoo Song-nyong and Admiral Yi Sun-shin, refused to trust the Japanese, refused to believe their promises. Even as the Japanese fell back across the battered Korean landscape, the Koreans criticized Lee Rusong and the Chinese for letting them escape, letting them march out of Seoul intact, because they believed, they knew, that the Japanese were not finished. And they were right. On any rational level, by any strategic calculation, by any objective standpoint, the Japanese had lost the Imjin War. Despite all their combat ability, they ignored the rules of logistics and sea power, they had stretched themselves out too far, and they had paid for it. There was no realistic hope of conquering China, and the Japanese probably couldn't even conquer Korea. It had taken almost exactly a year of warfare for Hideyoshi's dream of an Asian empire to be destroyed. But none of that accounted for the ego of one man. If Toyotomi Hideyoshi wanted the war to continue, it would. He had come from nothing, and if he couldn't have everything, he would inflict enormous pain on the people who had stood in his way. The Imjin War was not over, and when the Japanese came back, it would be a desperate, brutal struggle, a horror story for the ages. But it would also be Yi Sun Shen's finest hour. Next week, the Imjin War will resume. We will see how peace talks between the Chinese and the Japanese break down, and how the Koreans pay the price. We will see Hideyoshi and his generals devise a new plan of conquest, one that targets Korea's greatest hero, the admiral to beat all admirals, Yi Sun Shen. And we will witness Admiral Yi's finest hour as he stands off with a handful of ships against the enormous Japanese armada, a battle that I call the Korean Thermopylae. Will the Koreans win one of history's greatest last stands? Or will Hideyoshi's dream of an Asian empire come true after all? And if you want to know more about the technology of the Imjin War, you are in luck. Another bonus short round this Friday gets into the structure and makeup of the armies of Ming China and Chosan Korea, along with their military tech. So last week you got the Japanese short round, and this week you get the Chinese and Korean short round. Meet these unknown soldiers I keep talking about. The soldiers, their weapons, their armor, how they fought, what they believed, what they did. Catch Guns of the Dragon this Friday. And the story will continue on Monday with Episode 22, The Imjin War Part 3, Korean Thermopylae. 
But until then, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, especially if they're bringing arrows to your besieged fortress. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just maybe don't touch that weird bomb-looking thing they threw into your castle. If you want to find all my sources, including specially hand-drawn maps of the MGen War, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. Your messages, commentary, and listens keep me writing and keep me talking. Thanks so much for listening once again. See you same place, same time, Friday, for Guns of the Dragon. And then next week to continue the story of the Imjin War, only here on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>